When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. With an extensive trade unions background and a fire in her belly, environmentalist Denise Roche entered Parliament in 2011 with the Greens. Her two terms were spent on the opposition benches, but she still made an impact on Aotearoa. In 1868, the first Māori MPs entered New Zealand's House of Representatives. Today, there have never been more Māori in Parliament. They span the political and cultural spectrum and continue to leave an indelible mark on our political landscape. In this series, we'll explore the legacies of former Māori MPs as they reflect on their time in politics. I'm Scott Campbell, communications specialist and former political reporter. This is Mātangi Ko Faripuranga, te maunga, ko Waikato, te awa, ko Tainaui, te waka, ko Rakaua, te iwi, ko Natihuri, te hapu, ko Pikitu, te marae. Ko John Stansfield, taku huarangatira, ko Matariki, rauko Joe, o ko Tamariki, ko Denise Roach, taku inua. Good to come back. Good to come back for this, and um, you know, this is a ceremonial house. This this room is a ceremonial house, but the buildings themselves are as well. So the last time I was back here was a month ago for the the Pike River Memorial, and um, I was here representing my union. I want you to take me back to your childhood. So um, you were born in Tamaki. You have Whakapapa Tarokawa uh, and a large whānau. Tell me about that. Paint a picture. What was your childhood like? Yeah, I'm the eighth out of nine children. Um, so my parents were married in the early 1950s. And my dad is one of 15 children. And I'm one of nine. So uh, it's obvious that there's some Catholic upbringing there. <laughs> so there's two older brothers and then six girls and then a younger brother as well. So I'm the I'm the youngest of the girls. We moved to Hamilton when I was about three or four. Uh, Dad was on the railway, so it was that was a nice, secure job, which provided housing. And if you've got that many kids, then it's a good thing to do. 
But the railway union was also a community that kind of looked after each other. So we had a big family, but we belonged to like all the other kids and all the other families in the street, in Makamaka Street in Frankton, where I grew up. So were you essentially born into that type of union movement from the start? Yeah, I was actually, and Mum did a range of jobs. Mum went back to school as an adult student and got her school C, um, which enabled her to get quite well-paid admin jobs. But she'd also worked as a bus driver and as a fruit picker. So, I mean, just with that many kids, you just needed the money to, to bring us all up, I guess. What did that sort of lifestyle do for you as far as setting out your future? So, a big family, um, and I imagine constantly trying to get attention from mum and dad or from each other, what did that do for you? I learnt really early on about power structures. With that many people, you're constantly competing to get heard, so it's quite like being a politician. It's a good training. It's also where I guess I learnt the basics of unionism, which is about collective action, that if you want to offset the power or whoever's got the power, you're going to have to build up some numbers in order to do it, then that's, that's the basics of, of unionism. But also I learned about politics and unions and, um, you know, what was happening in the world from the discussion around the dinner table. Both my parents were union members. Dad was a Labour Party member. Mum pretended to be a Labour Party member because Dad had signed her up, but apparently um, she let him know when they separated eventually after many years of marriage that she'd never voted Labour. I think she probably would have voted Green if she was still alive. And so what's, what were some of those conversations and what do you remember about those conversations? Oh, I remember the Kaparafa. That was a really big issue, so the stuff that was going on on the TV and um, the land rights. So that was happening, I think, in the Muldoon years. And um, my dad just hated Muldoon. And I think there was quite a lot of union action around that time as well. Of course, I remember the 81 tour, I was, I was 18. I'd left home by then, but that was a, a, a big issue that we all discussed whenever we were home. And um, with Dad being on the side of the protesters and nearly everybody else being opposed to that, apart from me. The, yeah, the discussions were frequently around workers' rights, around um, what was happening to education, although education wasn't really a focus in my family. What about the real and tikanga? Was that a part of your early upbringing? No. Uh, well, it's really interesting because it's really only since my dad passed that our wider family, including his brothers and sisters, um, have connected to our marae. And we always knew that we were Māori because our grandmother, um, if she was scolding us, would generally do it in te reo. But my dad didn't have te reo. And in fact, my aunties, some of my younger aunties, had never been on to the marae and he'd never been on to the marae before he passed either. So we knew we were Māori, but I have to say my dad was racist as well. We'd been brought up, he'd been brought up, and I think his grandmother had insisted that we pass. And I think in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, it was a very racist time in New Zealand. I mean, it still is, but I think there was a wish from that older generation to get at the most that you could. I feel a sense of sadness uh, as you talk about that and, and 
I want you just to, if you can, explain to me a bit about um, your message there of your father being racist. What do you mean by that? Well, it was interesting. He always said he didn't want me going out with a Māori boy because they didn't treat uh, women very well. But I think he was speaking from his own experience of himself more than anything. And I think he was also thinking about the times and how, how men treated women anyway. It wasn't very nice in the 60s and 70s the way men treated women. And there was a lot of violence in my upbringing, a lot of domestic violence as well. So it, it kind of doesn't surprise me. But I think there was a whole bunch of racism that everybody swallowed in order to, to try and get ahead. You know, in the 50s, people were saying New Zealand had the best race relations in the world when obviously this wasn't true. What sort of impact did that have on you? It was actually when I, when I had my children, and I, I uh, had my children late, you know, my 30s, uh, that I started to recognise that uh, Papa matters. And, um, you know, by then it was the 90s and we were started, we'd come through the 1981 tour, the renaissance of um, te reo um, and tikanga Māori, the advent of Māori TV and there was the movement for Kohanga Reo, and that's when I started, and my father had already started his journey to connect um, with his whakapapa. Who were your influences? Who did you look up to at that point, and, and, and who did you want to be? As a young person, I don't really, uh, my role models were really my older sister, Ennis, who uh, was a storyteller, and she lives in Australia now. I always thought that I just wanted to be a nurse or something. Politics was not something I'd ever considered. And when I was 21, I started working for trade unions. And I remember my, my mother being quite shocked and saying, you know, this isn't a job for a girl. And I mean, it was 1984, uh, but it was still this sort of, you know, that's quite an unusual thing to be doing. And by that time, I'd, I'd put myself back through high school like she had. Um, to get my UOE and was and I was expecting to go to nursing school, but I just got a job as a union organiser instead. Did you change the world in the union movement? Uh, don't know. <laughs> we did do some major things. I worked in the front of house unions to start off with, which was people in cinemas and amusement parlours, if you remember those, amusement parks and billiard halls as well. It was kind of quite a specific group of workers. I did massive back pay claims. I was in court, the employment court, for the first time with no legal background when I was 22 and I was growled at for having my hands in my pockets. But it was about some workers who'd lost, who'd been kicked out of their jobs, but they'd been kicked out of their houses at the same time. So it was like looking for some, uh, some fair compensation for that. There's been some discussion that the union movement now is not relevant or not needed anymore because we have employment laws that are sufficient. What do you think about that? Uh, I think that the employ employment laws that we've got are really weak and they've been weakened um, over the period of the last maybe 35 years. So since the late 80s, there's been a gradual erosion of rights. And those rights were hard won by generations of workers before us. 
And those, I think, were the lessons that I learned at the kitchen table with my parents about those rights being won, about the introduction of ACC. My father was one of the last people that I think the RM, the Railway Men's Union, as it was then, case they took for compensation after he'd been injured at work before ACC came in. So those kind of changes were things that were fought for by working people, not just by politicians. Have you always agreed with everything in the union movement? Oh, hell no. And I still don't. The union movement can be quite moribund. Um, it's really just getting to grips now, only in the last few years, about climate change and about the need for a just transition. Overseas in Canada, the unions there have been way more onto it, but it's getting there. And so moving from the union movement into public office, was that just a natural progression? No, I retired from the union movement and went off and had babies and moved to Waiheke Island and lived on an organic farm off the grid, you know, absolute hippie with my babies in the sunshine. It's where I learnt to walk the talk um, about being green, I guess. Was that a reconnection or what, why was it important to be there on the whenua? My daughter's father, John, he had this organic um, farm. It's a cooperative partnership. So we lived off the grid there for nine years, you know, with the long drop toilets and the tank water and the solar panels. And it's just kind of where I learned to be a bit more mindful about what's going on with the planet and the impact um, of what that will have on future generations. Because, you know, because by then I had children and kind of figured it out that it wasn't just about me. And what was that like with your children living up there off the grid? It was, um, it was challenging. They'll, they'll tell stories of, um, you know, not having a TV and only having one appliance, which was the fridge. But they, they both kind of refer to it as a, a way of living that they enjoyed, I guess. The toilet was pretty scary. <laughs> and it was through living on Waiheke that I um, started working in the waste field. And um, so for seven years, I ran a campaign, a community campaign around waste minimisation. But in 2007, Denise Roche would run a different campaign, this time for the Auckland Council, spurred on by the proposed super city, which she believed would further weaken Waiheke Island's autonomy. One of your driving forces to get to that decision-making table was to have the ability to make decisions. Were you able to have that influence? Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest regrets in my political life is that most of it I've been in opposition and that was what happened right from the start. It was like really exciting to get elected, but it was a majority citizens and ratepayers council and John Banks was the mayor. And John Banks had some serious reasons to really have a bit of hatred towards Waiheke because we'd exposed some of his behaviour around a, a massive development plan for Matiatia on Waiheke. So, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't the best way to enter politics, I have to say. And there were some major challenges during that three-year term, not least the whole Royal Commission into Auckland governance and, the, and then the subsequent amalgamation. Is, has the super city failed? I think the super city hasn't delivered what it was expected to, which was cost effectiveness and cost efficiency and all that sort of stuff. And I think 
the reason it has not delivered that and why I believe it has failed is that the law of subsidiarity is that decisions should be made as close as possible to the people who are affected by them and that those who are affected by the decision should be involved in the decision making. But as you get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and the decision making control goes further and further and further away from the people, then the engagement drops. And we're seeing that in the voter turnout for local government. Um, and I think we're seeing that in the quality of development and the drop in council services across the, across the super city area. Were you going to always be in the Green Party as opposed to the Labour Party or another one? Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I have spent something like 20 years of my adult life working in the trade union movement, and I've never been a member of the Labour Party. And the reason for that is nobody ever asked me to join. And I used to teach recruitment within trade unions, and the first thing about recruitment is people have to be asked to join. No one ever asked me to join the Labour Party. I think people just assumed. But I don't think I was, I think I followed my mother rather than my father's line in terms of politics. And she was a social credit and values kind of person. And I actually joined the Green Party in 1999. And where I lived was a political base as well. Russell Norman lived out the back on the farm. He was doing his PhD. Laila Hare and her husband were partners in the farm. There's often, I guess an observation or a perception that the Greens are made up of social justice on one side and conservation on the other, and there's a tension between those two. Is that true? I don't know. I think, I mean, I just, uh, I think it was Ricardo Menendez March has made in speech this week, who said that you cannot have climate justice without social justice. You cannot have the environment without the people. And that's why the work that I've spent most of my adult life doing, either in trade unions or in the waste sector, about minimising waste and the impact on the environment, I think they go hand in hand. When you came into Parliament in the 2011 election, you're up against the now right honourable Jacinda Ardern. What was campaigning like for your first general election? Well, I'd actually, I'd been a ring-in in, in uh, 2008 when Judith Tizard lost that seat to Nikki Kay. And Nikki Kay had campaigned mercilessly and she'd had um, Michelle Bogue as her campaign mentor and manager. I was campaigning for the party vote. There was no way I was going to get in anyway. In 2011, when I stood for the first time as a, a list-ranked candidate, and Jacinda was the candidate. I actually felt like a wet dish rag between the, these two women. And the sexism from the media was quite shocking. You know, there was the Battle of the Babes, uh, which was Jacinda and Nikki Kay. There was a cartoon of the three of us on poles going, and it was called Pole Dancing. I was kind of perturbed by the scrutiny and both of them were sitting MPs, so they were both very polished and they were both, you know, top of their game. Facing that type of scrutiny and sexism, why would you continue? At some point did you decide actually, no, this is not the right place for me? Uh, yeah, no, I questioned it constantly, actually. Um, the reason you continue is because 
you're on the list, which means that there are hundreds, if not thousands of other people who've put you there. And it's that thing, right? You don't stand on the pie pie alone. If you're a leader, if people aren't with you, then um, get out of the way. You're not a real leader. And so even even just getting to that position felt like a privilege because I'd been uh, I'd been I'd been put there by my party. So it makes a difference, I think, when you've got that behind you. So despite some of those really challenging moments, your sense of responsibility made you feel like you had to just stay there. Yeah, and it was kind of like I really believe in the in the co-purpa of the Greens and wanting to make those changes that we have to make around dealing with the inequality and dealing with the environmental issues and dealing with te tiriti o waitangi and getting it you know, practically recognised and honoured on a daily basis. All those things come together to pull you and to, to keep you motivated. So you get to Parliament and anybody who has worked here knows that it can be a fairly lonely place at times yeah. and you get sucked into the bubble. What did it feel like for you getting here? I remember arriving here on my first day and like, oh, it's broke. <laughs> I was not well off. And uh, arriving here in a taxi, then it was a grey overcast day and I'd been dropped off in Bowen Street and there was the beehive and it was like a film set. You know, there's amazing artworks on the walls. There's incredible history and there's meaning in every stone and every piece of wood and every pow. And I don't know that I ever knew all the stories. So that's just the physical thing. And then there's that this is the place where the laws of the land are made and I get to try and help. Did you want to change the world again? Definitely. Still do. Still am. <laughs> Did you get to change the world while you were here? I don't think so. Uh, again, you know, opposition, and I don't know what it's like to not be in opposition, but even in opposition, you can make incremental changes, and I felt like I did. And the way you do that is you work with the communities who want you to be there to pressure the majority government and try and work for consensus or at least try and work for a majority across the house. Uh, it was a style of politics that I had to learn, but I, I absolutely loved the working with communities of interest to try and affect change. So an example would be working with the organisations that were lobbying for an increase in the refugee quota and actually managing to convince the government to increase the refugee quota, which they did. It had been set at 500 places for 18 years or something, and they increased it to 750, and it's subsequently been increased as well to recognise the fact that we hadn't kept up. You said you loved working with different parts of the committee and the like. What about when National reached out to the Greens? Did you love working with the National Party? And you talked about pressuring or hoping that the majority side of Parliament would take on board some of these incremental changes. Well, they did, you know, they did there. And they did there because they saw that the, you know, the public momentum had built up to the point where they could no longer do nothing. Similarly, the zero contracts 
um, changes that we brought in under national, and it was like a change to the Employment Relations Act, which they were doing all sorts of shitty things in the, with that. But we could actually push through a change which meant that we outlawed zero-hour contracts because of the momentum that had been that had been gathering in the union movement that we'd been working with. There are some good national MPs, like Chester Burroughs and Human Rights was really outstanding. Describe John Key to me. That's an interesting one, eh? I have no sense of the man, of, of the person. Uh, his political persona, I thought, was just shockingly horrible and reeking of uh, a type of privilege and um, elitism, which I just find offensive to the very core. He was a very popular Prime Minister, though. Do you think he duped people? Yeah. I think people like, um, you know, a jokey white guy who's going to make you, you know, make you, make you chuckle and, um, you know, might be useful on the barbecue kind of guy. But he was deeply offensive to so many people so many times. Um, and the result of his leadership of the National Party was increasing homelessness for people particularly Māori, you see it in Auckland all the time, and increasing poverty, increasing inequality, increasing restrictions on, on your civil liberties, and he sold our laws to international companies like Sky City or the Convention Centre, like Warner Brothers with The Hobbit. Wrap him up in one word for me. Prick. Were you frustrated here? <laughs> Yes, <laughs> frustrated, scared, exhilarated, uh, privileged. Yeah, frequently frustrated, um, but always, always looking for another route. You know, okay, we can't, can't do it this way. What's another way we can get in? And I think that's the lesson that I learned better in my second term um, than I did in my first. My first term, I was just basically um, trying to trying to find the ropes let alone learn the ropes. But Ms Roche learnt to use her platform. In 2015, she joined a number of politicians who walked out of the House in protest after John Key accused Labour of backing deportees who he described as rapists. Ms Roach and other women MPs revealed they were survivors of sexual abuse and demanded an apology. Do you remember that day? Yeah, I remember it very vividly. In fact, it's um, uh, kind of etched in my memory. It's, um, yeah, this is where we get the tangy-tangy, right? You know how I said that John Key was a prick? That was why. I'd gone with Jan Logie and Gareth Hughes. We'd gone to see the speaker to ask him to get John Key to apologise for saying the things that he did, which he said that those of us who were advocating that New Zealanders who were detained in Australian detention centre facing deportation back to New Zealand, that anybody who was trying to support those people supported rapists and murderers. And he used the term rapist several times. And we had asked the speaker to get him to retract it. The speaker came back and said, you should have raised it at the time. 
should have been thinking on your feet and raised it in the house. And so he couldn't ask him to apologise, which is actually, it was just a lack of goodwill on the part of the speaker's part. So we devised a strategy where the women would start asking these questions in the house, and it was between us and the Labour Party women. And so, yeah, I think Marama had only been in the job about five days. And uh, yeah, so she was, she was one of the people who stood up as well. And, um, and then we all left. Materia was the person to lead it, which I thought was incredibly brave. And it was standing up in the house and saying, as a person who has experienced sexual abuse, I want you, Mr. Speaker, to ask um, the Prime Minister to apologise. While no apology was made, Ms Roach says taking the stand with her colleagues over sexual violence was one of her most significant moments in Parliament. I think it was important for us to, one, let Parliament know that it's actually not okay to use those words, to call someone supporting rapists, or to diminish the whole issue of sexual assault, um, which is what he was doing. It was also important for us to be able to, and when we talked about it, do we disclose this? This is, you know, this is where you get the mad, sad and bad kind of reputation from. Oh, she survived sexual abuse. She must be completely f***ed up. It's like people with, me, uh, with mental health issues as well. It's like, do you disclose this publicly? Because you will wear this. You will wear this. And people will judge you and make decisions about your behaviour based on their knowledge of this, if you disclose it. So disclosing it was a big deal for all of us, but one in four women are affected. One in four women face sexual assault, sexual abuse. So if you look around who's in parliament, there's a quarter of us who are living with this and are just getting on with the business. So you're sitting in the house and just on any given day, it's a pretty imposing place. But you know that this is about to happen. Yeah. Talk me through the feeling of sitting there. Oh, it was really, really panicky. I remember feeling really panicky. I rang my sister before I did it, and said, because ours was um, family sexual abuse, and said, I'm going to do this. And she said, it's your story. You can do with your story what you want. Because I was worried about the you know, the collective impact, you know, always, always for me it comes back to the collective impact. The collective impact is that women who have been sexually abused by very powerful people and non-powerful people, but women who've been sexually abused, saw a whole bunch of women that, who are in powerful positions disclosing that they had been sexually assaulted as well and that it's not okay to make jokes about it. Were you scared? I was. I was scared. Sad? I was, um, I was more worried about my sisters and, uh, and my kids seeing that. I was scared. Yeah, I was scared. But it's also, it's also, it was a collective action that makes it powerful, impactful, and does give you a level of safety. And, Thank God for Materia leading that. You talked earlier about collective decisions and people sitting at the table with you. You called your sister. Had you spoken to your whanau, your children? 
Um, our family have dealt with sexual abuse throughout our lives and had come to a position of healing, which is very rare, you know, it's rare in a lot of families. And I had talked to my kids about um, what had ha happened to me as a, um, as a child. Did they know you were going to take that stance on Parliament that day? No, no, they didn't. I mean, I, how do you raise it with them? Hey, kids. <laughs> no. But what was their reaction after? Uh, actually, they were proud of me. Yeah, they were proud of me. Was that your toughest day in Parliament? No. My toughest day in Parliament was what happened to Matedia when Matedia resigned. During the Greens' 2017 campaign launch, Matedia Tuday attempted to highlight the punitive approach to beneficiaries, revealing that as a student, she hadn't declared rent from flatmates to wins to prevent her solo parent benefit being reduced. She later resigned amid a media fallout. Where did you sit on that? I didn't want her to resign. You know, when I think about it now with 2020 hindsight, I, um, I read her speech and we talked about her speech before she delivered it. This is the speech where um, she disclosed what she'd had to go through when she was on a benefit to support her and her family. How she had broken the rules, which is what people do to survive. And now I think if we could have foreseen the kind of backlash and the pushback and the, the harm it would cause her and her family personally, I'm, I wish we had have thought that through better and been able to protect her. Because none of us thought that it would destroy her career. None of us thought that she wouldn't be there after the next election as a result of her making that speech. There were three days of pretty intense scrutiny, particularly on Matedia. What were some of those dark moments like? Oh, I just remember, um, because the other thing that was happening was the implosion of the Greens. So the internal ructions that occurred as a result of Materia's, it wasn't so much Materia's speech, it was after that and the public scrutiny and the fact that Kennedy Graham was saying that he wanted to stand down, that he wouldn't be in a government where she was a minister, he wouldn't serve under her as his leader. And then Dave Clendon, who's another Māori MP, supported that. And so there was this internal ruction stuff happening at the same time. I just remember feeling so panicked all the time, trying to you know, with us trying to keep that out of the media. And we had an agreement from Kennedy initially that he would not say anything until after the election and then just quietly stand down. What were some of those discussions like? Pretty full on, yeah. We were used to, as, as a caucus, like there were 14 of us, in a caucus we were used to having pretty, ro <laughs> as they say, robust conversations. Um, but I just remember We'd got this agreement from Kennedy. I had, Kennedy and I didn't get on. And Kennedy and I still don't get on. But actually just saying to him, look, you are my whanau. It's a dysfunctional whanau, but you're still my whanau. Which means that we've got to look after each other. And I think he got it momentarily, but then he, he fell back again. Do you feel any sense of responsibility to what happened to Matidia? 
I feel the responsibility of not foreseeing the backlash. I see, I feel that responsibility. I think there's a lot of us that do. I feel like what she did though really changed the game. It really, it really highlighted the fact and it's become part of the political discourse that you can't live in dignity. You cannot cover the basics living on the benefit. And so while it was a tough day and a sad time for you, are you somewhat proud of that? I'll always be proud of you for doing that, yeah. I'm proud of you. But I don't think she should have been sacrificed. And it wasn't just her decision. Jacinda made it clear that she would not have her in her cab, ha would not have Materia in her cabinet. Talk to me about Jacinda Ardern. She's a pragmatist. That's a very pragmatic answer. That is a very pragmatic answer. Jacinda is a good leader and she has been fantastic in, a, in an emergency. Um, and we've faced some bloody awful things over her term. And I also think she's a very canny political operator and I would never underestimate her. This last campaign with the Greens, we saw further issues and potential splits. What was your thinking around how they handled things over the campaign? Ah, oh, you know, I have a, an absolute loyalty to the Greens and so it kind of feels a bit disloyal to sort of be critical. But I guess it's no secret that I'm way left of James Shaw and I think his handling of the Greens school was stupid. I think Martimer did a fabulous job of supporting him through it and really he had no excuse not to know the wider Green policy. I think the party has recognised that there needs to be more of a left element within the caucus, which is why Ricardo and Tiano and Dr Elizabeth Kirikiri were elevated up the list. I mean, I still think it's a damn shame that Jack MacDonald didn't get into Parliament last time because he would have been phenomenal. Life after politics. Yeah. What's that been like for you? It's been good, actually. I considered going back into local government politics and I stood in a by-election pretty much straight after the 2017 general election and then spent about 18 months on the Waitamata local board and then realised that actually if I was going to continue with local government work, I needed to reconnect with the community that I was working in. Um, so I just sort of decided to let that go for a while. But at the same time, I was working as a, an organiser for First Union in the transport, logistics and manufacturing sector, which is, you know, people who are working in warehouses, people who are doing the rubbish collections and the waste recycling processing. And that was really hard work. And then this year I started a new role, which is I'm now the director of the Actors Union Equity New Zealand. How will you be remembered here? I think within the Greens, they'll remember me as the person who made the soup for the star. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I'm not sure how I'll be remembered here. I was the chair of the Māori Caucus, and that was a role that I picked up when Mārama came on board in 2015, and we'd finally got enough Māori MPs within the caucus to have a bit of momentum or something, and devised a work program of actually connecting better and deeper with our Māori communities. And I'm really proud of some of the work I did there. And within the Greens of having our first Hui in 10, 15 years, and hosting that on Waiheke. 
I don't know how I'll be remembered by other politicians. Hopefully, I think, as a, a person who stood up for, for working people. I think this place gave me as much as I tried to give it. I think there's the privilege of speaking and learning a, a, the historical accounts of every iwi for every treaty settlement bill that went through. I mean, that was a remarkable privilege. I asked you earlier to describe John Key in one word. I want you just to describe yourself in one word. I'm committed. Yeah, it's committed. But I think every MP who comes here is committed. You know, every MP comes here wanting to make a change, you know, wanting to make their mark, wanting to change the world for the better. And I, and even the ones that are in parties that I would never consider, you know, voting for, I think even they want to as well. So, yeah, we do our best. Um, today is a, a big day for you and your whanau because your daughter is graduating degree in Te Reo Māori and Māori studies. That must feel like an achievement, not just for her, but one for you. What's your message to her? Oh, I'm getting all tongue <laughs> Um Yeah. Uh, so my kids, both my kids have got, um, uh, are now connecting with their reo and with their Māori um, whakapapa, which is really awesome. My boy Joey works at Te Arafiti. And then today, of course, Matariki, uh, graduates in Te Reo Māori and um, sociology with a minor in Māori studies. And I guess my message to them is that they have the opportunity to learn more and be more connected to our, our place um, and to our, our country as well as a result of that, that whakapapa. My generation who were not raised with Te Reo, at least with my kids, they had more of that. How proud are you? I'm so proud of I'm so proud of Mata, you know, and uh, and I'm really proud of Joe as well. I kind of feel really sad that my dad didn't get to see this and that my grandma didn't get to see that her lineage and her, her whakapapa is coming through and you can see it in generation after generation. And my kids were so much better prepared for the world then she was able to enable her kids to be. So it's this healing, I guess, of um, a loss or a disconnection that happened between the generations. And that, to me, feels like a really personal thing and something to be really proud of. Kia ora. Kia ora. You've been listening to Mātangi Reia. This podcast was made possible by RNZ and New Zealand On Air. This episode was presented by Scott Campbell. Edited by Debbie Matthews. Sound recording by Craig Mullis. Audio design by Dean Judd. Music by Audio Network. A big thank you to Kay Almers and Tim Burnell at RNZ Commissioning, alongside Kurahotu Māori Shannon Honui Thompson. Our executive producer is Wena Harawera. Mātangirea was directed and produced by Annabelle Lee Maver and me, Mihingarangi Forbes, for Aotearoa Media Collective. 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.